Hey gang, you're listening to the r and Rounds podcast. Jonathan Wallace here, and this is episode 71. We've actually been sitting on this recording for a while. It was originally recorded back in April at the EMU conference in Toronto. There have been just so many great topics and cases lately that our processing time from recording to publication has been increasing. One possible solution we have would be to begin to release episodes more frequently, but our current team at RNR Studios is 100% volunteers, and we're already working at maximum capacity in terms of the behind-the-scenes work that we do to bring you a new episode every two weeks. And so this is an overt segue into a request for your assistance. If you're listening in regularly and you like what the podcast is and what we're trying to do and you'd care to contribute, please let us know. You don't need any prior skill or specialized knowledge because we can help you with that. We just need a few hours of your time on a flexible basis over a couple of months, plus a desire to contribute to the podcast. For students and residents in particular, this could be a great way to get involved in an extracurricular project in the rural emergency medicine world. And you can make a meaningful contribution on a flexible basis and get some new experience and possibly even some credit from your program. And for medical professionals who are listening in, I'm talking to you, my paramedic and nursing and staff physician friends. If you're too busy with life and work to have extra time, but you'd still like to support our podcast, consider donating five or 10 bucks. Frankly, there aren't a lot of costs in operating a podcast like this, but as we all remember from when we were students ourselves, a gifted coffee or muffin from time to time makes a huge difference. And I have no doubt that our volunteer team would appreciate the gesture and support from the larger listener community. Anyway, don't get me wrong, the R&R Rounds podcast is going to remain a 100% foam project, and we're going to do our best to continue to put out quality episodes every two weeks for at least another 12 months. But any support you can offer or otherwise show to the program would definitely be appreciated and would brighten our day. To contribute, just go to podcast.rnrrounds.ca slash contact and drop us a note. Thanks for considering. Now, episode 71 is the airway panel discussion that was recorded at this year's Emergency Medicine Update Conference in Toronto. Emu and Dr. Jesse Guscott have both kindly given their permission for me to share this here. Now, there are a few diagrams and photos that you're going to hear us refer to and that I can't share with you on an audio podcast, but here's what you need to know. First, you're still going to be able to get 90% of the value out of the presentation simply by listening to it. Second, we're going to try to extract the most important slides and post them in the show notes for you to refer to. Just please don't try and look at them while you're driving, okay? Anyway, just go to our website, podcast.rnrrounds.ca slash 071 to find those. And finally, we're going to also post the video recording in the show notes, and so you can just watch the entire episode rather than listening to it if you prefer. Again, that's at podcast.rnrrounds.ca slash 071. All right, enjoy the show. We're going to introduce Dr. John Wallace and Dr. Jesse Guscott to talk about airway management, just in case there hadn't been enough disturbing talks already. We'll talk about something scary now. Scary. All right. Well, hi, everybody. Jonathan Wallace. Jesse Guscott. And we're here to be the airway panel, which means that we have had a little chat and come up with a few interesting cases that we think are relevant. It's probably worth prefacing this by just saying that both of us come from smaller sized communities. As you guys may remember from me, I work in very small remote places. And I don't know if I, if I offend you by calling Collingwood small. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's Collingwood's <laughs> a small, a small t- community site, but definitely bigger than the kinds of places that Jonathan works. All right. We've got some cases. Great. So th- what we thought would be kind of interesting is that kind of 
go through our memory bank of some interesting cases that we've seen in the last couple of years. I'd present them to Jonathan. You know, I'd present my case to Jonathan. He'll give us a little synopsis on what he would do in that situation. I'll tell you what I did and how it went down, and then we'll flip rules. So this is my case for Jonathan. Imagine yourself, Jonathan, coming on shift and one of your colleagues comes and grabs you. They have this patient that they had seen in the emergency room about an hour and a half ago. This is a 65-year-old woman who came in with belly pain. When he saw her earlier, 90 minutes ago, vitals were pretty good. She was complaining of belly pain for the last three days. The plan was to send her to the scanner. She had some IV fluids running. But now your colleague comes to grab you saying, I need some help. I need help with airway management. Her level of consciousness has decreased dramatically pretty quickly, and her vitals are as follows. The heart rate is fast at 120, blood pressure is 80 on 40, SATs are 80%. And given those dynamics and her level of consciousness, he's thinking she needs to be intubated. The only other relevant feature of the physical exam for you is that her BMI is about 45. So I wonder if you could just walk us through how you'd approach this situation. Sure. So this is not uncommon in the places I work because as the GP anesthetist, I'm sort of the de facto critical care for the town. So I often get called in for backup in these situations. We're going to expedite through this a little bit. There's a whole bunch of assumptions we've made just for the sake of focusing on the airway. But we've done all of the IVO2 monitors stuff. We've moved the patient to the resuscitation room. We've done our proper primary survey, make sure there's not a knife sticking out of her back or something that we've missed. And what we see is what we get. This is the list of what we call anesthetic concerns in terms of what we're going to address before we proceed. And so we can divide this into two families. We have physiological problems here, and we have potential mechanical and physical problems. So physiologically, I like to think about the three contraindications to intubation, and I like the acronym BAD. B, blood pressure, A, acidosis, and D, dyspnea, referring to hypercarbia and hypoxemia. And this patient has all three of those. She has the hypotension, the low blood pressure issue. We're all emergency physicians. Let's not belabor this. The solution there is going to be a combination of fluids and or blood and or vasopressors. So we'll begin to resuscitate her in that regard as we prepare all of our equipment and our approach for intubation. But in terms of the acidosis and the dyspnea, the hypercarbia, I mean, with a saturation like that, you've got to expect that she's probably retaining a certain degree of CO2. And that puts her at much higher risk of cardiac arrest on induction if we just proceed. So we really want to try and optimize this. And so as we heard from Bork recently here, just an hour ago, there's lots of options for non-invasive resuscitation. We're talking about just a non-rebreather mask. We're talking about high-flow nasal O2. We can talk about a bag valve mask with a PEEP valve and hopefully some entitled CO2 in line to kind of get a little bit better measurement. Or we could go straight to BiPAP. And I think it really depends on the situation. But the point is we really want to increase that saturation, get that as high as possible. And we have to anticipate that she's retaining CO2. We want to blow some of that off as well. I don't know that we necessarily need to delay things for a blood gas, but we just want to move things in the right direction and increase that safety barrier between cardiac arrest and successful intubation. So that's the physiological side of things. The anatomical side of things, I mean, the only thing we're identifying after a lemons check or whatever acronym you use is this BMI of 45. And I think this is a very intimidating situation. In my role, I get to help a lot of people practice their intubations because that's what rural doctors like to do. And so I get to watch a lot of people in their initial approach. And so I want to go over a series of tips today relatively quickly here, just because I think if you put this in context of the actual basics, it makes a little bit of sense. So I want to show you the three axes of the airway. You guys will remember this diagram. And all of these three axes have the anatomical names, but I think it's better to think about this in terms of 
the actual interventions we use to begin to line these up. Because as you remember, we're trying to bring all three of these into alignment to get that nice visual range into the glottis. And even if you're using a glide scope or whatever video scope and your camera's on the end, it's nicer to have a straighter path because it's going to make it much easier to pass that tube and get the actual intubation performed. You really want to try and bring these three together. So I like to think of these as the neck extension axis. And if you look at that vertical red line there, you can imagine that as you tilt the head at the occipital joint, you can appreciate that's going back up and that red line is coming in line with the purple line. The next one is the ramping axis. So again, I've got a diagram to display this, but if we put the troop pillow or whatever wedge pillow in there, you can appreciate that the purple line is going to begin to go up there a little bit as well. And then lastly, the purple line is the laryngoscopy axis. So ideally, we want it to look something like this. So a little bit of neck extension there by pushing on the forehead. And this is one of the biggest issues I see with people trying to practice their laryngoscopy is they're not putting the head into enough extension. The other thing is, of course, the troop pillow there. And we want to do that before we start pushing induction drugs. If you're doing that after you've pushed induction drugs, you've lost the battle. All right, so neck extension alone. Again, we've got our thumb there. You can see that already that neck extension line, the red one, is coming in line with the purple line. And if we do the ramping, this is the patient just laying there. And you can appreciate that from the angle of the sternum to the earlobe, which is really what we want to get at the same level, you've got quite a diagonal there. That's represented by that little thin white line in the background. So we want to adjust that. And by putting on the troop pillow, you can now see that the level of the earlobe is approaching the angle of the sternum, and that has automatically brought uh, ramping axis and the laryngoscopy axis into alignment. So with your laryngoscope, there's a lot less work to be done. All right, so these are kind of, again, the names that I like to apply to this. Have you used enough thumb to put the patient into extension? Have you ramped them properly? And then, of course, your moment of truth, your laryngoscopy axis to see if it all comes into alignment. So based on the case that you presented, that's more or less what my approach to it. What did you do? Cool. Same kind of approach. My approach, first of all, is to think about the physiology of this case. So I'm really worried about that hypoxia. I'm really worried about that hypotension. I'm really worried about that acidosis. So I'm going to try to correct those things. And I'm going to move quickly to try to correct those things to try to get to intubation. And sometimes the patient's going to declare themselves as needing to go sooner rather than later, but I'm always getting those things going. So the kinds of things that you talked about, so getting the patient into a ramped position, and what you're talking about here is largely around ramping for airway management, but I'd also think about bringing the back of the bed up just to improve oxygenation in that time where I'm trying to resuscitate before I intubate. I'm also definitely getting some pressors going, as you talked about, and I'm thinking about push pressors, and I'm trying to get that blood pressure up into the normal or super normal range as soon as I can to buy myself space for this intubation. And in this case, this patient, the intubation went pretty straightforward. She did sort of declare herself pretty quickly as needing this intubation sooner rather than later. So thankfully, we had gotten that resuscitation pieces started early. And the intubation itself went actually relatively well. So congratulations. You've done a great job. You've intubated this patient. You can see the endotracheal tube in the right place there. Unfortunately, she's aspirated as part of this process, an acute abdominal process with a decreased LOC. I'm not really sure there was much we could do about that because that happened really, really quickly. But this is where we found ourselves. And I think this is the reason for her sudden deterioration, the sudden hypoxia, the sudden blood pressure drop that often can go with that acute aspiration. So we've got the patient intubated. The vital signs have normalized a little bit. They're on pressors. We're now oxygenating pretty well. And then about an hour after that, the RTs come to get you, Jonathan, and they say things were going okay, but now we're worried that something's going on with the ventilator. I think there might be a cuff leak. 
because we're having trouble getting good tidal volumes and the sats have now dropped down to 80% and are sort of hanging out there despite being on 100% oxygen. I wonder if you'd just walk us through how you would approach that situation of the deteriorating patient on a ventilator. Sure. I think the first thing to point out is that having an RT available would be a luxury in the places where I work. So typically when we put someone on a ventilator, it's the physician who's sitting there babysitting them. But the question still is very valid. So when I have someone who's on a ventilator and they're beginning to decompensate and there's not some sort of immediate thing that's obvious to fix based on the monitors and whatnot, my go-to move is to switch them to a bag valve mask that's already connected to 100% oxygen because I've got it there ready to go in this case. And then I separate the machine and I begin to handbag them and that gives me a whole bunch of information really, really quickly. Because now I've taken the differential and I've physically divided it into two pieces. Because if the patient all of a sudden recovers on my handbagging, then I can be pretty confident that the problem was upstream from the circuit up to the ventilator. And then we have the patient stable, we can troubleshoot that, life is good. However, if the problem persists, now I know it's some problem between my ET tube attachment down into the patient. And so then I can use my stethoscope, and it's pretty much the only time I use a stethoscope anymore, and I can now hopefully clinically diagnose what's going on. Have a listen to those lungs, see if there's any sort of decreased breath sounds or wheezing. And the other thing is just the feel of the bag, that resistance gives me an idea of, is this patient feeling a little bit restrictive or whatnot? So that's kind of my approach to my differential for the deteriorating patient on a ventilator. Perfect. I love having these conversations where we can take a step back and we can talk about things being removed. And Jonathan's approach was excellent, you know, talking us a little bit through how to approach these things systematically. In the moment, I must confess that that's not quite how it went for me. Things seem to be moving very quickly. So my first reaction was the RT is talking about a cuff leak. And that's a thing that truthfully I haven't seen very much of. So I'm definitely suspicious. Put thousands of tubes in in the operating room. I've never had a tube that I had to exchange because of a cuff leak an hour into a case. I think maybe once I've seen a cuff rupture. So I'm a little suspicious about it, but it certainly sounds reasonable. So I go to the bedside and I do what you said, which is I switch over to the bag and just want to get a sense of the resistance. The resistance actually feels very, very low. And if I put my stethoscope over the airway, I can actually hear a little bit of a gurgle. So I thought, well, I guess this is that one. I haven't seen a lot of these, but certainly sounds reasonable. So I decide that I'm going to change out this tube. I'm going to exchange the tube. So I have a look into the airway with a video laryngoscope, and sure enough, I can see gurgling at the glottis. I can see air coming back out. So that pretty much confirms the diagnosis of a cuff leak. So we'll talk a little bit about how I would exchange a tube. You Like me, you probably haven't done that a million times because it just doesn't come up all that often. But in this situation, for an eMERGE doc, you may have to do that. In this patient, there was just nothing in it to not re-paralyze the patient. So I just went ahead and re-paralyzed the patient because the one thing I don't want to get into is the patient, as I'm exchanging the tube, having laryngoscope a spasm or having some resistance against me. So I re-paralyzed the patient. Again, obviously, we're already out on 100% oxygen, so there wasn't a lot we could do to try to optimize that. And then I put a bougie with a video laryngoscope in the mouth so that I could see all of the exchange happening, put a bougie down the tube, pulled the tube out, and then replaced it over the bougie, being able to watch my actions in real time under video laryngoscopy. And that part went fine. No problems at all getting the tube out. Later on, I did check the tube, and sure enough, there was a pinpoint hole in the cuff of the tube that I think was accounting for the leak. But things start to get interesting here. I think, hey, we solved the problem. Fantastic. High fives. But unfortunately, the SATs aren't improving. 
They're holding at about 80, and I'm starting to run through my differential here. But as is often the case, if you've ever been in a crisis and you're feeling stressed or in real-life situations, my mind tends to funnel a little bit quickly into the most common diagnoses. So the first thing I'm thinking is, have I put this tube too long? I know it's not too short because I watched it go through, and I've got waveform capnography that's telling me that I'm in and around the right place. I think waveform capnography is totally the standard and what we need to confirm tube placement. So I have that there. But I'm thinking, well, maybe the tube's long. I'm having a little conversation with the RT about how long we go, because earlier I had taped it at 21, they had adjusted it to 23. So we're kind of having this back and forth. I'm also thinking maybe this is just pulse ox lag, and I just need to wait for a couple of minutes. So we wait for a couple of minutes, we sort of leave the tube in the right place, and now we're actually starting to desaturate things are actually getting worse. And so now I really don't know what's going on. So go back to the steps that you talked about. Let's come up with a differential. So again, I'm still thinking this tube might be long. Uh, so earlier in the day, Amit talked about humility and presenting cases with humility. So I'm going to present this next part with humility. So the RT says, well, x-rays right here. Let's shoot an x-ray and see if the tube is long. So we shoot an x-ray. I run over and look on the viewer. And this is what I see. And I run back over to the RT and say, don't worry, the tube's not too long, it's in the right place. <laughs> and just as I say it, I realize I actually haven't looked at anything else on this x-ray other than that the tube is in the right place. So thankfully, I didn't fixate very long, went back over, and now we've made the diagnosis. So there's actually a huge tension pneumothorax there that accounts for this recurrent hypoxia. So interestingly, I think what had happened is this pneumothorax, who knows how long it was there. You can see there's an IJ in that right side. It's certainly possible that we had a small pneumothorax from the IJ insertion earlier on. I also think that the fact that we had a cuff leak was protective all of that time. So we weren't able to generate high pressures to ventilate the lungs because of this cuff leak. And once we replaced the cuff, I think all of a sudden we could insufflate this right chest and blew this pneumo. Then that's confounded by the fact that the patient was persistently hypoxic. So the respiratory therapist is bagging. At one point, I was like, hey, you got to slow down. That's about 80 breaths a minute we're going at right now. But that's what happens reflexively when we start to desaturate with that tube in, is we just try to squeeze the bag harder. We try to squeeze the bag faster. So thankfully, now we have a diagnosis. We go ahead and put a chest tube in the right side, reinflate the lungs, and we do reoxygenate satisfactorily. So... I like this case because we have this mnemonic. We have this dopes mnemonic, which you've seen probably at some point in your career, where we're talking about bad things that can happen on a ventilated patient and how to troubleshoot. And what I like about this case, in addition to my own cognitive suboptimal performance, and I like talking about those because I think it normalizes that for all of us, is also that this patient actually entertained three, if not four, of the dopes mnemonics. So we worried about displacement. I worried that the tube was long, and that seemed to be a thing that was very plausible when you're reintroducing using your tube. Obstruction wasn't high on my list for sure. Pneumothorax ended up being one of the diagnoses. And then equipment failure. I think that cuff leak is an equipment failure that would be on your differential. So I think breath stacking definitely was on the differential when this RT was breathing really quickly and we had to be really deliberate to slow the breathing down to try to avoid that. So really all of our dopes mnemonic there came into play. And that old adage that there's probably not more than one diagnosis going on at the same time certainly was not the case here where we seem to have four if not five of them at the same time. So, All right. Jonathan, why don't you throw me a case? So this was a case that I saw right out of my anesthesia residency, and I was up doing my first locum. I was an anesthesia staff for about all of four days, and this guy comes in. He was a 30-year-old fellow who, unfortunately, had tried to commit suicide. 
and he'd taken a razor blade and cut both his ankles, cut both his wrists, and then slashed himself across the throat. Now, this is not what his neck looked like. I'm sorry, this was the closest copyright-free image I could find to what it was. His basically looked like one central pit without all the little explosive scratches there. But in that pit, every time he spoke, you could see little air bubbles coming out anteriorly. Now, I don't want to have any confounding factors here. He was hemodynamically stable. He was absolutely cooperative. The bleeding all stopped just by simply putting some bandages on it. So really, it came down to the airway injury. And again, we saw the list of indications for intubation. Just an hour ago, I would add one other indication for intubation, and that is when you're in a location like this, which for me was about a 14-hour drive to Vancouver or about a two-and-a-half-hour flight, you have to think about intubating and securing the airway for transport purposes. And that's what we needed to do in this case. So Jesse, what would be your approach here? Yeah, so like the collective groan from the audience there when we talked about the air, uh, I would groan for sure. That's how I would start my resuscitation. Yeah, so my approach to these kinds of airways is move very, very quickly through setting up my plan preparing for the worst, preparing for all my contingencies. And then if the patient's physiology allows, then I try to slow my thinking down. So I try to make my actual actions slow if I have time to do that. So on this patient, again, I would get them in a good oxygenating position. I would get them sitting up a little bit if we could do that. I would get two sources of oxygen on, and I'd be assessing for other signs, you know, that I need to progress to my airway management definitively quickly. So if the patient is striderous, I'd be more worried, obviously, if the patient's desaturating. I'm also interested in things like how are they phonating? Are they able to move air across the trachea? Is the air actually going through the larynx? Because what I'm really worried about here is a disruption in the airway somewhere between the mouth and the lungs that's going to cause us problems. I'm worried about swelling. I'm paying attention to subcutaneous emphysema. Those are all other things that I would be looking at. So if I've got some time, if the airway is declaring itself as like relatively stable, then I'm going to kind of go down one pathway. If we have to do things very emergently, I've already marked this neck out for front-of-the-neck access, and unfortunately, based on where that injury is, we may be talking about a tracheostomy rather than a cricothyrotomy, with which we're a little bit more familiar, a little bit more prepared. Well, that's definitely what I'm thinking, so I'm going to set that one up first, then I'm probably going to set up my adjuncts like a video laryngoscope, what I would do from the top. Uh, I'm obviously going to have bag mass ventilation and even a, an LMA. I would have all those things ready. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about what the patient was looking like from a respiratory point of view. Yeah, again, he was hemodynamically stable and very cooperative. When we probed the anterior neck lesion, it wasn't large enough that you could put your finger in. We didn't see an open canal into the neck. It was just bubbling through the soft tissue. Yet, we're worried, is there actual disconnection or partial disconnection of the trachea? And that's the real concern here. Yeah, so in that situation, it sounds like we have time. The patient was not hypoxic. The patient was not striderous, was not in imminent respiratory failure. So because we're worried about this disruption, this would be a patient that I would try to do an awake fiber optic intubation in. So what I'm really worried about is that the larynx might look fine. I can see the larynx from above, but that I can't actually get from the larynx into the lungs in a continuous fashion. So this is someone that I would topicalize and try to go into their airway with a fiber optic or a bronchoscope um, to have a look with a tube over top 
and then slide over. So thankfully, the patient's cooperative now. That's super helpful. I try to do my awakes without much facilitation in terms of pharmacology. Just go really, really patiently. I talk my patients through it. I hold their hand. I let them hold my hand. I tell them that they can always tap out if things are uncomfortable, and then I sort of walk them through the process of how things are going to go. So I would top apply this with lidocaine, have a bronchoscope, go through the larynx, try to get down as far as the carina. If I can see the carina, then I would slide a tube over and hopefully then be able to put them off to sleep and, and transport the patient. Yeah, that's pretty much what I did. I was fortunate enough to have an intubating scope. I think it was an ENT scope. That's not true in many, many hospitals that I work in, but this case I did. I guess the thing to mention is that if you are sliding the ET tube blindly or inadvertently slide out of the proximal portion of the trachea and you slide into the soft tissue and then you inflate the balloon and begin to bag, you could create this large swelling and you could turn a partial disconnection into a full disconnection. And that's why we ideally want to do this under direct visualization until we see the carina. Yeah, that's great. So Jonathan's case ends with an airway that looked way worse than it actually was, and at the end of the day, was able to intubate the patient okay. But I think I'll offer another cautionary tale of a very similar type of approach to a patient with a threat of an airway disruption. So we had a patient who came into our emergency room, a 45-year-old patient who tried to hang themselves, and then unfortunately, the fortunately for the patient's survival, but unfortunately for their injury, sustained a very significant injury across the front of their neck. But they got up and got themselves in their car and drove to the emergency room. And when they presented to triage, the presenting complaint was that they couldn't speak. So they were sort of pointing at their neck and unable to phonate. The patient was brought into our resuscitation area and really had no obvious airway signs other than the inability to phonate. So the SATs were fine. The patient was not striderous. There was a ligature mark across the front of the neck. But the initial approach was really more around the trauma piece of it. Is their neck okay? So the patient went on to have a CT scan of their neck. Again, oxygenation is fine, not on any supplemental oxygen. And then the CT scan of the neck is read as neck is fine. There's no fractures, but there's a high suspicion of an airway injury. There's some subcutaneous emphysema and it's read as the architecture of the airway is distorted. So I'm going to show you some images here. So I am not a radiologist. I am no specialist in images. I like to put plastic tubes in breathing holes. And in the first (laughs) image on the left, there seems to be something that looks like a hole that I feel like I could put a breathing hole through. So that's at the level of the larynx. The next image is a couple slices down, and you can see that there's no longer a hole. There's no longer anything that looks like a lumen. And then in the third image, it looks even worse, where the whole front scene, the only whole anterior part seems to have come apart. So that's not really communicated in the CT read that's given back to the emergency physician, which is mostly around like there's a risk of a tracheal disruption here. So an ENT, we do not have ENT in our community hospital. So someone gets on the phone and talks to ENT who says, we're happy to take that patient, but they'll need to be intubated for transfer. So the approach to this intubation was an RSI. What they found is sort of what you would expect, which is the tube got through the hole on the left, no problem. But then after that, wasn't able to advance any further. They put the cuff up and tried to ventilate the patient. Initially, didn't really work that well. Tried again to reintubate, but just kept getting resistance just distal to the larynx. So able to oxygenate, patient never had a critical desaturation, able to oxygenate, but still not able to even get the cough through the larynx. They can see the cough in the larynx, but not able to get it through. Gas exchange is actually okay. So they drive a bronch through the tube and hit tissue. So hit soft tissue at the end. So miraculously, this patient's actually being ventilated through the eyelet of the endotracheal tube. 
So the tube is cored into soft tissue at the end and basically is just being ventilated out of the side port of the endotracheal tube. So again, here's the sagittal image, and you can see there's this huge defect in the anterior part of the airway where the line's pointing at the anterior defect. And so I think what's happened is that endotracheal tube has basically gone where that arrow is into this false passage. That's subcutaneous emphysema in front of that, dark in front of that. So that tube's actually gone into that spot. So once they realize they can't get the tube any farther in, but they are able to ventilate the patient, they quickly bring the patient up to the operating room. We have general surgeon who was able to, so actually wasn't even on call, but they called him quick and he was there in a few minutes and was able to do an open tracheostomy in the operating room. This patient actually made a full recovery. So while Jonathan's patient ended up not having the fearful diagnosis of a central airway disruption, our patient did. Well, Jonathan's management would be sort of your textbook management with an awake intubation from above, and ours was not quite a textbook, I think, again, because some of that information was missing. Fortunately, both of those patients did well, but provides a bit of a cautionary tale around our central airway injuries. We've got some summary points just to cover what we talked about here. So before you intubate, think about the patient's physiology. Think about the bad. Is the blood pressure low? Is the patient possibly acidotic? You don't need a blood gas. You can just guess. And are they dyspneic, meaning do you think they're retaining CO2? And then secondly, ensure that the positioning is optimized. And we can, we can spend lots of time on that, but today we covered the three axes. And specifically, are you putting enough pressure with your non-intubation thumb on the forehead to get that extension? Are you ramping the patient properly? Yeah, and then for mine, don't be a dope. Uh, avoid fixation on one possible cause of hypoxia. Try to keep your differential broad. Way easier said than done in a crisis, but hopefully evoking that dope mnemonic could be helpful for you if your patient is desaturating on a ventilator. And then for any airway emergency, I think move quickly to plan, move quickly to get contingency plans, but then if their physiology allows, really then slow down and take your time. In these patients that have the potential for a disastrous airway, if they're giving you time to take your time and make a good plan and execute, then take advantage of that opportunity. So we are the only thing standing between you and getting ready for the Maple Leafs game today. I had to throw one Leafs reference in. I would normally be wearing my jersey, but I was co-presenting with someone from Western Canada, and I didn't want to make him feel bad. Uh, but next year, I will be wearing my Leafs jersey. It's okay. Again. I don't follow baseball. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. Thanks very much for your time. The R&R Rounds podcast is free open access medical education. This episode was hosted by Dr. Jonathan Wallace. Show notes by Heather Lean. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for more clinical pearls. Visit podcast.rnrrounds.ca.